If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 6. We have one more chapter from the Sermon on the Mount after today. So I'm in kind of this race. You don't know this, and it really does, but I'm in this race with my son to finish the Sermon on the Mount before he comes. That's, that's the race we're in. He doesn't, he's not aware of that race, but that's, that's the race I'm in with him. So Matthew chapter 6, let me just kick into this, starting out in verse 25. Jesus, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food or the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers in the field and how they grow. They don't labor or spin thread. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You have little faith. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If you have a Bible with you, you can stay there, but also maybe put a marker in Psalm 104. We'll bounce back to Psalm 104 here in a little bit. But whenever I was in fifth grade, and yes, this is, I think, the second or third story I've told about me being a child and crying during lunchtime at school because apparently that's what I did a lot of. So when I was in fifth grade, um, I, I had the, the idea that I was always going to carry my lunch to school. I did not go through the cafeteria line. I wasn't going to eat that gross food. I was going to take my lunch, and I was going to do that because my mom packed my lunch for me every day because that's how much she loved me. Um, so she would get up, she would pack my lunchbox, but today, my fifth grade year, was a special day, because my mom was not just going to pack me lunch, my mom was going to go to Subway and pick up lunch and bring it to eat with me, a roast beef pepperoni mayonnaise sandwich, because that's what I always got from Subway, just those three things. So she was supposed to pick that up, but about 9.30 that morning, it began to snow, if you know anything about Tennessee, the second snowflakes start following, the entire world, like in Tennessee, goes to panic mode. Everyone goes and buys milk and bread out of stock. So, so it starts snowing. There's more snow in the forecast. So they come over the intercom, and they say, hey, school's going to be released early today. But there was something about, like, they legally had to feed kids that were at school for X amount of hours. So they had to give the students lunch before they could release us. So what they decided to do is they were going to do an abbreviated lunch where every class was sent one at a time to pick up their lunch trays and carry it back to their class and eat lunch in their class before they were going to be dismissed. Now, I don't eat gross lunch food. My mom's supposed to bring me food that day. So I told my teacher, I'm not going to go through the lunch line. My mom's bringing me Subway. She's bringing me a roast beef pepperoni mayonnaise sandwich. And my teacher was probably like, whatever, dude, just stay seated. So anyways... The, my students, my classmates, they all come back. They all have their trays of food, and time starts to tick closer and closer to time to leave. My mom still not showed up 
to, to bring me food. Now, any rational person could look at that and say, I'm not going to starve to death. I'll probably get food when I get home. It's not a big deal. But in my little fifth grade, 11-year-old mind, that's not what I thought. My thought was, did my mom forget about me? Did, did she forget she was supposed to bring me lunch today? Am I going to starve to death? And so I began to cry, as only I did as a child. And I'll never forget, there was this kid sitting next to me, and he had, like, baptized his french fries in ketchup, like ketchup french fry cereal. And he sees me crying, and he grabs one of his ketchup, like, fingers, french fries, and he's like, you can have one of my french fries, Philip. And that's, like, one of my locked-in, like, core memories, which only made me cry worse because I hated ketchup. You guys have those situations? I think we respond, not the ketchup thing, I mean, maybe that. But, but the, I think we see our relationship with God sometimes like that. We bounce through life with this generalized faith and trust in God that he is good and generous and we can sing he's a good, good father, he's providing, and it's great and wonderful until that concerning situation unfolds. And we look around the classroom, and it feels like everyone has lunch except us, and the panic starts to set in. How am I going to survive without fill in the blank? How, how am I going to survive without money? i got to pay my bills, God. How am I going to survive without that career? I set my entire life pursuing that career, and now it's just not there. How am I going to survive without that relationship? See, I was supposed to have God take care of me, but what if he's forgotten about me? What if he's not aware of this situation? What, what if he can't actually take care of me? Welcome to the questions that Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount, we've been over this over and over again. It's, it's Jesus' manifesto to what the culture of his kingdom is like. So over and over again, he's giving stories and teachings about what life is like in the kingdom of heaven. So in Jesus' kingdom, the poor in spirit and, and those who mourn and the humble, those are actually the blessed people. That's what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, it's not just about following the rules and having the right behaviors. It's not just behavior modification. It's deeper. It's internal. It's the transformation of your heart. So in the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. In Jesus' kingdom, you don't do things to get the attention of other people. You do things to glorify God. In his kingdom, you don't store up treasures here on earth where they're going to get destroyed. You actually entrust everything back to God. And it's in that, I think, that for most of us in modern Western America, in that lies the rub. Because what happens when you entrust your lunch plans to your mom and some unforeseen circumstance prevents that plan from happening the way you imagined? What happens when you entrust everything to God and some unforeseen circumstance obliterates the very concept you had envisioned your life and finances and expectations to go. So last week we talked about how intentionally living like Jesus means you entrust everything to God. But that has to be coupled with this teaching as well, which I think tells us that intentionally living like Jesus means trusting everything is God's. So you can only entrust everything to God when you already understand and believe that everything, in fact, already belongs to God. He, he created it. All the possessions you own, 
they actually belong to God. He, he, he made them. You don't get the right to own anything outside of him. This is what Jesus is getting at. Now, that's really easy to say. But let's be honest, how, how do we feel about Jesus' words? Don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you wear. Don't you know God knows what you need and he'll take care of that? And my mind brings all of these objections to the text. Jesus, are you saying we should be careless about our resources? I mean, what, what about the baby bird I had to pray from my dog's jaws the other day? I thought about putting a picture of it up, but you, you don't want to see the result of that one. What about that baby bird, God? Were you, were you, what about the wildflower that got caught up in the field grass fire? What, are the people that, what about the people that didn't have a coat this winter? What about the U.S. government running out of money on June 7th if they don't raise the debt ceiling? Like, God, are you, are you aware of that? Because my newsfeed is, and it's making sure I am. It seems to me that there's a lot of reasons to worry, Jesus. How could you believe something so naive? But we have to remember, Jesus sees the world so differently than we do. I mean, Jesus sees the world in a radically different way than what natural people and how natural people see the world today. And, and, and in reality, if we could look at it and understand it this way, it's not that Jesus sees the world in a just completely different way. It's that Jesus sees the world as God originally intended humanity to see the world. Jesus' worldview is one that's actually rooted all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And so Jesus is inviting us not to just blindly believe what he's telling us. Yes, there's that because that's faith, but to also come and experience his way of viewing the world. This is exactly what he gets at when he says in verse 22. He says, the eye, of the, lamp, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of dark. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Jesus is saying, look, you can't see the world how I want you to without me restoring you, without me transforming you, without me giving you sight. So what is this difference in perception that Jesus is getting at? And to answer that, I want to take you back to Psalm 104. If you have your Bibles, you can flip back there. You see, in Jesus' mind... His father, God the Father, is the designer of the world. And as designer, God the Father created a universe exactly as he wanted. And it was very good. That's the word he uses over and over to describe it as he's creating. Meaning, God created the world sufficiently and generously. So Psalm 104 then is this meditative worship psalm that, that's looking back at Genesis 1 and understanding who God is and how he made the world. Now, to understand that, we've got to do a little bit of legwork through Genesis 1, then we'll get to Psalm uh, 104. You don't have to go to Genesis 1. I'll, I'll catch you up there because actually, uh, we did a sermon about this in February of 2022. I'm sure all of you remember it very clearly because that wasn't forever ago. Uh, but we used this as a graphic for that sermon. Um, and you can actually find this on our website or on our podcast stuff where we talked about how creation works. Because I think sometimes when we look back at Genesis 1, it almost feels like God is arbitrarily just speaking and stuff's getting done. And that is happening. God's speaking and stuff's happening. But there is a method to what God is doing. There's intent to how God creates the universe. There's organization and beauty and wonder in what God is doing. 
It is intentionally paralleled order where the first three days, God separates things out, and then the next three days, he fills in the separation. So day one, he creates light and dark. Let there be light, and, and there's darkness and light separated. And if you jump all the way over to day four, God fills in the light and dark with sun, moon, stars, those, those types of things. So he's separating and then inserting creation into it on day four. On day two, God separates the waters and the sky. Now, this is weird for us because we don't think about it this way in our modern kind of scientifically set mind. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. It's just we don't think about it like this anymore. But in ancient time, when you look up at the sky, what, what color is the sky during the day? Blue. What color is the ocean? Blue. So in their mind, the whatever water's going out to where I can't see must also be up above me, hence why sometimes the rain falls from the sky. They're just trying to make sense. And so the Bible uses that kind of illustration to say God separates the water from the sky and puts a firmament there. That's why we use the word firmament. And then on day five, he comes in and he fills those things with birds and fish, fills the sky and the water. And then on day three, God separates out the water from the land and he puts plants on the land. And then on day six, he fills the land with animals and then humanity made in his image. It's this whole story, and there's so much more there. But, but here's all this to say. Genesis tells a story of God's intentional and loving means by which he created the world. God does not create the world because he's bored. God did not create because he needed some servants to take care of him, and he just didn't want to have to work anymore. God created because he loves. And if you look, you can see his love all over creation. So the psalmist in Psalm 104 is reflecting on this, looking at how God is loving and reliable based from how God created the world. So Psalm 104, verse, excuse me, verse 1. My soul, bless the Lord. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy. By the way, people sometimes will say, how could God separate light and dark when he didn't even make the sun and moon until day four? Uh, God is light. He wraps himself in light. Psalm 104 answers that question. Verse 3, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind, and making the winds his messenger, flames of fire his servants. He established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. You covered it with deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the waters fled. The sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross, and they will never cover the earth again. God oversees every inch of creation. From every light particle we see in the night sky to every drop of blue in the day sky, from every cloud covering every mountain, every last inch of the unfathomably large universe is created by and belongs to God. It belongs to him. It listens when he speaks. And he has so meticulously designed everything that creation might thrive. And as creator and organizer, 
He cares for everything. Verse 10, he causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow from between the mountains. They supply waters for every wild beast, every wild donkey to quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They make their voices heard among the foliage. Foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruits of your labor. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for the man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes the human heart glad, making his face shine with oil, and bread that sustains the human heart. So as creator of the universe, who does God provide for? Everyone. That's Psalm 104. That God is the creator, but he did not create and step away and say, we'll see how this project works out. God is relentlessly pursuing and interacting and providing and caring and changing and working within his own creation. And it's at his creation that earth is satisfied, that he's provided it with everything he needs. God sustains his creation. Now, this was a deeply ingrained belief for Hebrews. They believed that God created a stable world. That the world was stable enough to provide if creation would simply trust God and follow his way. Namely, if people, humanity, would trust God and follow his ways. Now, here's the difficulty in that. The underlying perception of that worldview is surrender, not control. That's what God wants. Hey, will you just surrender and trust me? Now, the Old Testament people, they didn't always get it right. It's chock full of stories where people try to assume control of situations rather than trusting God, namely the very first one with Adam and Eve saying, God, we'll take care of this and eat the fruit. But it plays out through Abraham and going to Egypt and lying about his wife to Pharaoh. It plays out in David's attempt at covering his sin with Bathsheba. It's over and over again, people trying to take control rather than sacrifice sacrificing and submitting and surrendering control to God. But even then, there were moments of clarity, like Psalm 104, where they could look back and know, the more I trust God's control and ability, the less concern I have about my own. That is a biblical truth. The more you trust God's ability and care for the world, the less you have to worry about your own ability within that. It's the total opposite from the modern in typical human response. Because in our mind, the world is incredibly unstable. And we need to gather as much resources as possible, and we need to fight off those who would seek to attack those resources, because humans crave control. It's what humanity has wanted since the very beginning of the fall, that they would assume the position of God and have control like God. And I think... This has always been a reality, but it's been particularly worse in the recent history. Because as we've been able to progress technology exponentially in the last century, have you thought about just how ridiculously we've progressed technology? It's insane to just think about. In 1903, we talked about this a while back, the Wright brothers had the first flight. It's a pretty cool little technology piece there. Within less than 70 years, we put a man on the moon. That's insane. From 1903 to 1969, we went from just learning to fly to putting someone on the moon. That's how fast technology has gone forward. And that was, I don't want to do the math from 69 till now. It was that long ago. Here's here's my point. 
Since then, we've been continuing to progress so fast, it's actually hard to conceptualize. So I was trying to find ways this week that I thought, like, here's some good ways I can conceptualize just how quickly technology and progress and all this has been, been going. And so I decided to uh, have a little chat with an automated intelligent thing, because that's a, that's a thing now, right? You can go have uh, Google Bard and chat GPI or GTI or uh, it's automated intelligent chat. So it's not a person you're talking to, it's a computer. And so I decided to go and just type in, hey, can you help me conceptualize the exponential progress of technology? Here was the chat bot's response. The exponential progress of technology is one of the most important things to understand about the modern world. It is driving change at an unprecedented pace and is having profound impacts on our lives. We need to be aware of this change and be prepared for it. Thanks, Google. That's like the most ridiculous form of irony I could ever think up in myself. But it's with this that we've started to become convinced in a lot of ways that we actually can control everything. I mean, we've always tried to control. In ancient animistic times, it was through animal sacrifice and superstition. But now it's through science and technology of this modern world we call home. And it's all an attempt to master something that I believe in the end cannot be mastered. And we keep thinking, if we could just get more control, then we wouldn't worry anymore. If we could just control our lives or control our stories, if we could just make sure that nothing bad ever happened, we could finally break free of our anxiety and everything would be good. And so we have to land there if there is no God. Because if there is no God, then really everyone in here, we're just trapped by blind chance, subjected to even more blind chance. And our only solace is to grasp at more and more control. See, if there is no God, then we're not the image bearer of a generous creator and host who made a good world. We are just the dominant species at the top of the food chain. And we've pretty well made a mess of the place. And no one's coming to save us. So now we're drowning in vain attempts at more control only to crash and burn into more and more and more anxiety. I mean, this is just statistical truth. If you go and look this up, you'll find 50% of adults, half of the population, the statistic's more like 49.6%, but right at 50 of adults, 18 to 24, say they struggle with regular anxiety or depression systems, symptoms. 50% say they struggle with that. The, the use of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that's uh, what we usually just call antidepressants, it's increased 35% from 2016 to 2022. 35%. And every year, we seem to be tracking an uptick in chronic depression, bipolar disorder, mental health issues, so much so that 90% of Americans now believe there is a mental health crisis in the United States. So surely if we can just gain more control, we can get rid of that, right? Surely we can get enough technology out there that finally we won't have to worry about any of that anymore and we'll break free of our anxiety-ridden culture. Except it's not happened that way. Now, all that to say, I'm not saying we shouldn't seek out medicine to make the world a better place. I am really grateful for medicine and technology. I promise. I've, uh, I've been reading about, like, childbirth because that's something that I think about often right now. Did you know what childbirth mortality rates were even 200 years ago? It was crazy. It was something in the realm of like 500 to 1,000 per 100,000. Now we're down to like 15 to 20 per 100,000. 
Like, I'm grateful for that. That's a wonderful thing. But however far we progress, the Bible would seek to say, and I absolutely believe it's right, we can never control. So what hope is there? What, what hope do we have? Psalm 104, verse 24. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number. Living things, both large and small. And there are ships, they move about in the Leviathan which you formed. Play there. All of them wait for you. And when you give them, you give them their food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it, and you open your hand, and they are satisfied with good things. See, I think the only hope we have is that we would somehow find a means to break free from our trifling attempts at more and more control and look to the one who perfectly created and satisfies everything, to the good provider that still tends to his creation. This is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 5. This is what he means when he says, don't worry about what you eat, but instead go look at creation, look at the birds. Don't worry about what you wear, go look at a flower. He's not just being hippie Jesus. In Jesus' mind, he's saying, if you go back and you understand how my father created this place, you would trust that he is capable of taking care of you. So go and trust him, or as Jesus says in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be provided. Seek God's kingdom first, his ways, his goodness, his love, and then trust that if you follow that, he is faithful to provide you everything you need. That's what he just said at the end of verse 32. That don't you know that God provides what you need? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. I was thinking about that a little bit this week because I think it's interesting because in my mind, if a father knows what you need, and like God would know statistically how many calories we need per day in order to have a healthy lifestyle, and if he was just providing for needs, he would have been like, here's some protein pellets for you to eat. You eat three protein pellets in the morning, two for lunch, and four in the evening, and you will be a healthy adult human. The end. But is that how God provides for us in food? No, God put plants and spices and wonderful things on this planet that we can eat and not just be sustained, but actually enjoy it. When God gives what we need, it's not just, here, here's some protein pellets, eat it. It's out of love, out of a desire to know and be known, out of reaching out to us. We can trust that God is not only providing, he is good. I'm not saying it will always be easy. And I'm not saying there won't be tough times. I mean, we're living right now that it just feels like in a lot of ways there's just this looming, tough circumstance. But that's not new. In, in 1997, there was a Jewish rabbi and a therapist. His name was Edmund, uh, Edwin Friedman. He wrote a book called The Failure of Nerve. Um, really interesting book. He went on to do some like higher-up government uh, help and stuff with that, giving advice, advisory teams. But in this book, 1997, he begins to point out, so, so this was before I cried in the fifth grade, just so you know. He begins to point out that in the West, we've done an exceptional job at progressing technologically and economically. But he goes on to say that when it comes to emotional and social health, he says that it actually looks like the West is regressing 
rather than progressing, and, and we're regressing into what he calls a perpetuating cycle of anxiety. 1997, or what he might call a chronic anxiety. And so he actually gives the, this cycle of anxiety that he says is just a downward spiral in society. He says it starts with this culture of reactivity, that there's a constant need to react to external events, to stimuli of life, and it's usually a reaction of anxiety or fear or outrage. Now, now luckily, in the last 20 years, we've not built a never-ending 24-7 cycle of news that's peddling story after story to curate reactions of anxiety or fear. Luckily, we've not done that at all. Luckily, media doesn't you know, make money off of how we feel and how many clicks we give, except for the times they do. And he says that whenever that becomes normal, it leads to a hurting instinct. That while we like to think of ourselves as individuals and separate from the people around us, we're actually very closely connected with each other. It's a very Hebrew way of thinking. So when everyone around you is chronically anxious, you're supposed to follow suit. So if you're not outraged about the recent tweets that politician posted, or if you're not mad about the silence from that other politician, well, then you're a bad person and you're part of the problem. And then that leads to blame displacement. All of this anxiety, it's, it's the conservatives' fault. If they would stop being so greedy and pay people more, we would all live comfortable lives and be happily ever, live happy ever after. Or this mental health problem, it's the liberals' fault. If they had stopped telling people they could identify however they want, we could actually focus on important things. And we place blame. And that leads to a quick fix mentality. That in a hedonistic world, where the chief purpose of man is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, the solutions are really incredibly simple. Get rid of what causes pain and promote that which gives you some more serotonin and dopamine. Those are the chemicals that make you feel good in your brain. And we would have so much more of that if we just elected the right politician, if we just got back to the good old days, if we just increased minimum wage, if we just, then if someone doesn't recognize that solution is right and good, because I feel it's right and good, then we just repeat. So I react to them and start the herd instinct, and we're just a downward cycle. This, this is 1997 that he's saying that there's a pattern unfolding in America. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I've seen that play out in my lifetime pretty clearly. And if we are living in a perpetuating cycle of anxiety, what on earth is the solution? And I think if we're going to give a solution to this, it can't be more technology. It won't work. None of us are in here are smart enough anyways. Sorry. But it's not going to do, solve it. The only solution is to break the cycle. That's it to step out of the perpetuating system of anxiety and say, I'm choosing not to live that way anymore. And I would argue the only way that you can rationally do that is to trust everything to God. To do what Jesus asks you to do, to do what Jesus is inviting you to do, and to say, God, I trust everything belongs to you. So I'm sitting around in my class, I'm watching all of my, my classmates eat their school lunch, and I begin to think, how am I going to survive without lunch? I was, I was supposed to have Subway, and now I'm going to starve. And I begin to cry, and that kid offers me his French fry ketchup soup. And I cry more. And I don't fully remember what happened after that. But I'm sure by the time my mom came and picked me up, she probably looked at me and was like, why have you been crying today? 
And I told her, and I'm sure our conversation would go something like this. Philip, do you really think I would ever let you go hungry? Philip, do you really think that I wasn't aware of the situation? Philip, do you think I forget about you when you're at school? See, everything in this world is attempting to suck you into this cycle of chronic anxiety and worry when Jesus is coming and he's saying, I have a better way. Would you trust me? That even when things don't seem like they're going to plan, do you really think I would ever let you go hungry? Do you really think I wasn't aware of the situation? Do you think I forget about you when you're not at church? Because let me tell you just how much Jesus loves you. Jesus came to earth, and he taught her a lot of really good stuff like this. But Jesus doesn't just stop life at being a good teacher. Jesus actually takes his life, and he lives it perfectly the way God intended humanity to be lived. And he takes that perfect life, and he carries it to a cross, where he pays the price of a sin he never committed. And on that cross, he actually offers to take your sin on his shoulders, And then on your behalf to give you his righteousness, to make a trade. And then he dies and carries your sin to the grave, worry included, to restore you back to the way humanity was supposed to live so that God would give you hope. He would give you restoration. He would love you. This is how much God loves you. Does it actually eliminate anxiety, worry? In 1997, Friedman made the proposal in his book that what what the world needs is the world needs what he called a non-anxious presence. That's the solution. I think he gets somewhat there, but I don't think he gets all the way there. Because he says the world needs a non-anxious presence, but I don't think he does a great job at explaining what gets you to being a non-anxious presence. See, I think Jesus is the only means by being a non-anxious presence in this world. And I'm just telling you, If First Baptist Church of Portales becomes a church where we are the non-anxious presence in Portales, that we don't gather in here every Sunday and freak out because everything's gone, but we come and we say, God, we trust you are the good Father. We trust you still provide. And regardless of what's going on out there, we follow you. Might it look different? Might Portales be changed? So let's be the non-anxious presence. I'm going to pray, and maybe this is just your time to spend a few moments to say, God, I'm, I'm struggling with this, and I need to come back. You can stay seated and pray in your seat. You can come forward and pray with me if you want. Maybe you've never known this love, and you just want to come know it full. Now's a great time to do that. But how do you step into the invitation of Jesus and live life as a non-anxious presence? Father God, we thank you for what you've brought to us. And I pray that you would be clear to us this morning that you have offered a life that is not bound by distraction and worry and concern, but a life that is found in freedom and love and goodness. God, would you help us as a church to embrace that lifestyle and let it make a clear difference in our workplaces and our community right here in Portales. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.